the day that Indra Nui became president of PepsiCo, she returned home triumphantly to tell her family the good news. Here was an immigrant to America from India who'd made her way to the very top of the slippery corporate ladder. As she opened the front door, Nui's mother told her to turn right back round again and go buy milk. Family duties, Trump career achievements, no matter how big, her mother insisted. Not long after, Nui climbed even higher, becoming the company's chief executive. During her 12-year tenure, she pushed revenues to over $63 billion. But she says that one of the biggest conundrums she faced in that time was how to juggle the demands of her job and her family. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, is the work-life balance possible at the top? Nui is a trailblazer, not only one of a handful of women to have run a Fortune 500 company, she was the first South Asian woman to do so. Although she left PepsiCo in 2018, she remains a leading voice in business and she sits on the board of one of the most innovative and often controversial companies changing the way the world shops and lives, Amazon. She takes a frank look back over her experiences in a new memoir, my life in full. Indra Nui, welcome to The Economist Asks. And it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, a great pleasure. And before we talk in a bit more detail about your life and your career at the very top end of business in, in the US and beyond, I have got a tricky question for you. You formed an all-girl rock group back at Catholic school in Chennai or Madras, as some people might remember it. I think you were called the logarithms. Why would you pursue a corporate career when you could have been a rock star? If I was a good rock star, I might have gone down that path. It was so bad, this rock group. It was a Catholic school, good kids singing some songs with sort of beat up guitars. We were a novelty in the town and people loved us. And that's all that mattered. We had a great time. But our career started and ended right there. <laughs> you could just say you peaked early and, and, and leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So in your book, which is called My Life in Full, and I think that's you know, that's an indication that, that you really want to give us full disclosure, was a lot expected of you. I, I'm just struck looking back over your CV, as, as we would call it, your resume, that you graduated at university in India at a high level, you went to Yale, you stayed in the US for the rest of your career. And you've said you believe in the American story because it's my story. When you arrived in America, I'm really interested in people who are not born in America, but who come to graft onto the society and succeed and what we can learn from that to help others. What was it that took you there and, and drove you? I mean, everything one had read about the United States was just unbelievable. Seat of innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity, cultural pursuits, anything to do with music, art, everything originated from the United States. So we looked at the U.S. at that time. This is in the mid-70s. It was uh, the most aspirational place to be in. And many of my friends from the IITs who'd done five-year engineering degrees, many of them had gone on to the U.S. to pursue their master's or their PhDs. And they would all write back saying that they were learning so much and they were really, really enjoying their time in the U.S. because while India gave them a great foundation, their vistas were being opened up in such unbelievable ways in the U.S. 
I think you said later when you met the British Prime Minister and you, you went off and, and had dinner at Chequers, which is the country retreat of British Prime Ministers, who, who asked why you had immigrated, as it was then, from India to the US, not to the UK. Tell me, tell me your reply. My reply was that I wouldn't be having lunch with the British Prime Minister if I had immigrated to the UK and not the US, because I think the US at the time that I came in was much more welcoming of people like me. When I became CEO and I didn't see many like me in mainstream companies, leave the tech companies aside, in mainstream companies in other countries, not just the UK, in any other country. Who was the prime minister? I'm just curious. I'm passing on that. <laughs> I think we'll figure that one out. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I bet I can figure that out without the intelligence services. I'll come back to you. <laughs> it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? About I'm sure that their response would be that they would wish the UK to, to be as, as welcoming, but you didn't feel that? It's not that I didn't feel that. I never went to the UK at all, but I felt very welcome in the US and I didn't see people like me in mainstream companies in the UK. Although I must tell you, the British prime ministers that I interacted with were incredibly supportive and friendly. And I struck up a great relationship with them. So this is, you know, what happens in 2006 and later, as opposed to the early days when I went to the US in 1978. Two different eras. And in 1994, you joined PepsiCo. There were no women leading Fortune 500 companies then. By 2006, when you became the CEO, there were 12. 11 or 12, yeah. It's not, not many, is it? <laughs> Enough for you all to kind of book a table. Did you ever sort of feel that you should stick, stick together <laughs> as a sort of Friday nightclub or similar? Well, we tried in Davos to get together and form a sisterhood of women CEOs so we could talk about issues together And that worked for some time. But then when you're spread out all over the country and the world and everybody's so busy working their jobs as well as juggling their families, you run out of time to get together. So while we knew that the sisterhood existed, we never really had time to get together regularly. We tried for a couple of years. There are 41 female CEOs leading Fortune 500 companies today. On the one hand, that's obviously progress, but it doesn't strike me as extraordinarily fast, given what you've said about that energy, that drive and innovation in the US. Why is that? I think the fact that we have 41 women in the US who have become CEOs from zero in 1994 is progress. Would I like the progress to be faster? Oh, absolutely, yes. And I think... One of the reasons is because we do lose a lot of women because they're trying to balance motherhood and the work uh, situation. And we don't have the greatest support systems here as yet. I think uh, things are beginning to change. So uh, people did drop out of the workforce. But I honestly believe that the fact that we've gotten to 41, and it's not the 41 that really is important. It's big, iconic companies are now run by women. I look at companies like CVS. I look at Walgreens. I look at... General Motors, these are huge, big name brands in the US and they're all run by women. So I think we are entering a new era where women who are sort of bubbling up to the top are going to be ascending and they're beginning to be noticed as good leaders, great creators of shareholder value and running the company for the long term. So I'm very optimistic, actually. Ursula Burns, the former head of Xerox I interviewed a little while ago on this show, said that she thought quotas for women on boards was now the right answer. She hadn't started with that view, but she felt that progress was too slow without it. Do you agree? 
So having women on boards and the right women on boards, and I mean the right defined as people who'd speak up, who'd look at issues related to diversity in companies, is all the right thing. Today, we have many, many companies with board members who've been there for a long time. So we have a couple of three choices. One is refresh the board, bring more people in who are more current and purpose-built for the future needs of the company. Second is existing board members sort of re-educate themselves and say the issues are different. I have to focus on different issues. Or there's a third option, which is to expand the board to include more people who are diverse, especially women. I don't think we have a lack of women to join boards. I think we need to open our minds and say, you know, women can contribute significantly to board governance and not use the fact that we don't yet have an opening as a reason not to bring them on. To your mind, finding the, the ways within the organisation seems to me to be more important. I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth on this and it's important than that kind of, we need a, a structural change, which in a way almost make it impossible not to, to be driving things. Is it a pipeline problem? Is it a board problem? I, I'm never really sure myself. And therefore I ask everyone who's, who has more experience in business than me. So let's separate our two things. One is the executive ranks of companies. The other is supervisory boards from the American sense, two different things. Supervisory boards of companies, there are women out there you can bring in. And the real question is, do you have the opening to bring them in? My point is, you can either refresh the board by replacing board members with women, or you can expand the board to bring them in. But you've got to have the mindset to say, I do need them on the board. The whole senior executive ranks and building the pipeline of women is a whole different issue because it's not building them at the top levels. It's building them all the way from the time they enter the company and making sure they don't leave. You know, I think if you want to make change rapidly, I think there is a place for quotas. But quotas for women on boards only works if women join boards and they're included in the conversation. They are treated as equals. So I think the mindset of people on the boards has to change because the worst outcome could be you put women on boards just because you've got to meet a number and then they don't feel an equal member of the board. You took over your job from a man. It's been handed over to another man. Ramon LaGuerta, I think now, runs PepsiCo. Do you wish you'd had a woman filling your shoes instead? The board picked the best person to run the company and Ramon's an outstanding choice. Let me tell you that when we developed candidates, we actually developed a lot of women to bubble up to the top. Many of them left at the senior middle-level management to be CEOs of other companies or to run major portions of other companies because, you know, the pyramid thins so rapidly at the top that it becomes the lottery. Are you going to be one of 10 that's going to be picked to move up one more level? Are you going to be one of six that's going to be picked to be the CEO? A bird in hand is worth a couple in the bush. So people went off to run medium-sized public companies, which gave them a lot of visibility. So the one way I look at this and say, boy, I fed corporate America with a lot of leaders, women leaders. On the other hand, I wish they had stayed in PepsiCo and taken their chances on whether they could become CEO. Let's turn to the work and family conundrum, the two sides of, of life that have to, to coexist. And there's a, an anecdote in your book when you become president of PepsiCo and, and return in triumph to tell your mother. Uh, and instead of showering you with praise and I suppose demanding that you immediately go out and get a new suit, she says you should go out and buy milk 
even though you point out someone else, possibly like even a husband, could have gone for the milk. Uh, you may be president or whatever of PepsiCo, I think is a uh, only only a mother is allowed to say this quote. But when you come home, you're a wife and a mother and a daughter. What was your response? Well, for an instant, I was mad because I thought she should have let me enjoy my crown for just a minute. I felt that this is such an unfair world because had it been my husband who walked in and said that, we would have polished that crown for him. On the other hand, in retrospect, I'm, I'm coming around to saying my mother was actually giving us a more profound lesson. She was saying that when you come home, you're the only people who can be the parents of your children. You're the people who are the children of the family to the mothers and the mother, my mother and my in-laws who were around at that time. And we had responsibilities at home that were different than the responsibilities at work. And you spend a lot of your waking hours at work when you come home. Leave that crown in the garage. Put on your humility hat and come in and, you know, be a member of the family. I think it was a very, very valuable lesson. Even though deep down inside I said, let me enjoy my brief moment of fame. Uh, to be honest, I think she grounded me. And uh, I'm actually grateful to her for that. You don't think that it demonstrated attention, not only in a particular family context, but that the idea that women can have it all on the same terms, that men have been fortunate, successful, well-supported, have been able to, to have it all. You don't think there's still a bit of that story that speaks to that unfairness as well as, yes, you should still be a grade A parent when you get home as much as it's hard enough being a grade A employee, isn't it really? Or employer. And then having to, to shed it and be something else at home. Is that something we ask more from women, Indra? It feels a bit like me, like that may be true. <laughs> My mother belongs to a different generation. I mean, a completely different generation. She was in a generation where women were, you know, the homekeepers and for the entire life, they sort of managed the house. That's the generation she came from. The fact that she put her foot on the accelerator and let the daughter soar is a very positive reflection of her. If I now told my daughters, leave the crown in the garage, that would be a travesty. And I don't. I always encourage them to have equality in whatever relationships they're in. And the fact that, you know, the time has gone by where the woman did all the housework and the child rearing and uh, the ideal worker was just a man. So those days are over. So I think now there should be more equality in everything that a couple do. One of the reasons that probably your early bosses saw something remarkable in you is your extraordinary appetite for work. And the Economist has called you in the past a super boss. You often started work at 4am when you were a boss, let alone, God knows what you did when you were trying to get there. Anyway, you started work at 4am and worked 20 hour days. Is that a role model, though, for the work-life balance when you were leading PepsiCo at the, at the time with enormous responsibilities? But sometimes that work culture at the top can feel a bit onerous to those underneath it. Absolutely the worst role model. And, you know, I wasn't waking up at those hours because I had PepsiCo work to do and therefore I had to wake up to do them all. I just have an inability to sleep all my life. So it has nothing to do with the work taking up so much of my time. Early in my days, when I woke up at four, I would go through all the mail and the presentation decks that were in my mailbag. And um, I would send emails right away with questions. 
And people felt bad when they didn't respond at 4.30 or 4.35, even though they were sleeping. And I found people sort of trying to wake up earlier and earlier to respond to my emails. Then I learned that that's the terrible, terrible message to send to the company. So I'd write all the emails and then download them at 6.30 or 7. And I would tell people, if by accident I send you an email at some ungodly hour, it's by accident. It's just that I don't sleep and so I send it out. Do not respond to me right away. Yes, this is the utter terror, isn't it, of this, the uh, email sent at 2 a.m. from your boss that you, you see after a slightly lazy morning. <laughs> and you have to demonstrate you're awake for those emails. You don't have to. Not with me. A lot of people would say that a partial solution to some of the things that we've touched on in, in your career that you, you describe in, in the book, but which resonate much more widely, is that we can't make big strides without addressing childcare, and particularly for more affordable childcare for those who are not, whatever their level of success, are not going to be top earners. And in the rich world, it is eye-wateringly expensive to have help looking after your children. If you were in charge of this, and you are a big voice uh, in the argument, particularly in the US, what would you do about a coherent childcare policy that, that would be realistic? So, and that's a great question, but I want to caveat that just a little bit. There's care, childcare and senior care, because more and more people are aging, and we're all going to be part of a generation where we have to take care of our aging parents. So let's hold the care equation as an important discussion to be had. Second is, I'm a business person and a strategist. I can identify problems. I can say what's going to happen. The answer I'm going to give you on policy is not informed by any politics because I just don't know how the policy world works. Let me tell you what I would do. I honestly believe in this post-COVID world, we're still trying to figure out where people are going to work how they're going to work, when they're going to work. So based on how people choose to work flexibly, hybrid working, how offices end up, we may need care facilities in communities attached to a co-working space and maybe available on demand. So this is one thing that has to be sorted out in the next year or two. Once that gets sorted out, we can start to think about the right care structure to support the evolution of the workplace. Let's stick with that work from home question. There's a split in businesses between those who tell employees work from home is the new norm and those asking people to return to the office. If you were still the boss of PepsiCo, what would you be saying? This gets to the point of how do we bring family and family builders and nurturers and women into the centre of the dialogue? Uh, If we want to encourage family creation and family nurturing, If we want to bring more women into the workplace, I'm afraid we're going to have to think about flexible work arrangements. Herein lies the rub. What we cannot have is a statement which says each employee should decide for themselves what to do. In which case, you might have one group of people with no children or no care responsibilities, and maybe many men who go to the office, and all the women with care responsibilities are left at home. You'll end up with two classes of citizens which is never the intent. As companies sort through how they want to create new workplaces, they may want to actually be formulaic and say, come in these two days for these work groups. On the other days, other people come in, get very formulaic. Don't leave it to people to decide on their own because if they do, you might well end up creating two classes of citizens. People who come in, therefore you see them in action and they have the soft skills, the so-called soft skills, 
who understand the culture of the company and those who don't. And some of them might be women. Many of them might be women. And you don't want them to be penalized for promotions and pay. Let's turn to some other challenges that companies are facing now. A big one is fairness and the question of, of fairness and taxation. You're on the board of Amazon, so another giant company in a different space, of course, to PepsiCo. It's frequently come under fire, Amazon, for not paying its fair share of tax. The company set aside nearly $2 billion for taxes last year. I am guessing that's in anticipation of the Biden administration's push to get companies, particularly those operating around the, the tech space, to pay more in taxes. Do you agree with this? I will tell you that as a member of the audit committee of Amazon, there is not one thing Amazon does to not follow the rules. There is not one thing. It's the most ethical company and it follows every accounting and tax rule in the world. Well, that, that it doesn't seem to me a very full answer, Andrew, because the whole point about rules and accounting is that the tax triage can uh, occur within that, that uh, companies can game where they set up, where they deliver, where they register. If one's looking at taxation as a fairness issue, whether it's within the rules is not entirely a broad enough answer, I think. You know, that's for countries to decide what their tax rules should be. From an Amazon perspective, we are very, very clear on following all the rules and operating within a framework that is legal. And that's all we do. And I think the rest of it is something that has to be discussed with Amazon. I'm not going to speak for that. Do you not understand? I mean, you've been very active in talking about how capitalism needs also to, to change, to be flexible, to meet new challenges, that the way that companies pay or don't pay tax on a lot of their global earnings is it, a, rightly an issue of moral concern. Would that be a fair question? I think every company should pay taxes. It finally does lead us into something that you have written about uh, more extensively, and that's at PepsiCo where you had a transformation strategy called Performance with Purpose. I'd like to say I dug this out of the Economist archives, but in fact, my uh, very able producer dug out an article that you wrote for us in 2007, and you, you talked about the vision of performing with a purpose would be the greatest challenge to businesses and that they must ensure their producers contribute positively and responsibly to society. That, in 2007, was a bit less of a, a sort of common view of the purpose of a company than it is today. So I suppose having sort of put you on the spot on, on one aspect of the moral purposes of companies, I can at least uh, say that, that you were very prescient about that and about being net neutral on, on emissions. I mean, look, I am not suggesting for a moment that this is easy, but this is a trade-off that I think has been in your mind for some time. So tell us about that. I inherited an iconic company and a company that had done very well over decades and decades and decades. The world around us had changed and was changing rapidly. And I knew that we had to future-proof this company by changing or investing one step ahead of the change so that we could continue to perform well, well into the future. And that required us to recognize that there was a health and wellness push in consumers' minds and transform our portfolio, add better for you and good for you options to our fun for you offering, but more importantly, reduce the salt, fat, and sugar even in our fun for you offerings while maintaining taste. I knew that we had to cut down our water use 
because we had so many plants in water distressed areas. And plastic usage had to be cut down. We had to increase recycling and we had to cut down our greenhouse gases. You know, I could feel that because I could see all of the trends in the marketplace. And people, people loved working for tech companies because they were exciting. Consulting, uh, banking paid a lot of money, but I wanted that same talent to come to PepsiCo. So we had to create an environment where people could bring their whole selves to work so that we could get the best and brightest. All of this required investment and a transformation. So they were all put under this umbrella, performance with purpose. Performance, yes, but we were going to ensure human sustainability, environmental sustainability, and talent sustainability. And this was not about giving away the money we made. This was about how we made money. If we didn't transform the portfolio, we couldn't sustain performance. If we didn't focus on environmental sustainability, we wouldn't get a license to operate in many societies and our costs would go up. And if we didn't have the best and brightest, we couldn't run this company effectively. So to me, performance and purpose reinforced each other. Let's look at the sugar tax and other concerns about carbonated drinks and where they fit into public health strategies. What's your feeling about the responsible way to market something that people enjoy, but which isn't doing them a ton of good? Well, the whole idea is to launch products with lower fat, sugar and salt, especially with Pepsi, launching Pepsi Max, but not making uh, the Pepsi Max impossible to find or too expensive. So the whole thing was nudging consumers to the better for you choices or the good for you choices. So we put the Pepsi Max in the UK or zero sugar in the US at eye level, shift more advertising towards the zero sugar option and nudge consumers towards the better for you option. And I think that's what we were trying to do all the time. Look, you can't tell consumers what to eat or drink. That's their choice. But what we can do is to do whatever we can to shift consumer behavior by advertising the zero sugar option much more. But we did all those things because we thought it was the responsible thing to do. I'd love to ask you about the line between being a business leader, particularly a prominent one, and you, you, you've got a, a book out there. You want people to engage with your ideas. You're prepared to, to take on the arguments that flow from that. America was a pioneer in the 19th century of keeping business and politics separate, perhaps mindful of, of you know, the dangers of entwining the two. But if we look now in 2021, different social historical contexts, some CEOs from firms actually, including Delta, Coca-Cola, big firms have protested laws restricting voting in Georgia. The Trump era definitely perhaps drove that sense that CEOs, some of them at least, wanted to speak out. What's the right balance then between business and politics? a tough one, and because um, I've always said that whatever you do as a CEO, especially when you speak out on social issues or political issues, one third of your employees cheer you on because they expected you to do that. One third hate you for doing that because it's against what they were thinking. And one third are silent because they just don't know whether you should have spoken out or did you speak out as per their wishes. So I always felt two thirds supported you or two thirds were against you. You know, if you look at that one-third silent majority. So the best thing you can do is to fall back on your value statement and only speak up when it's something that impacts your company's value statement. If you get dragged in every direction, it's tough because there's a social issue that bubbles up every day or every other week. Company CEOs cannot be whipsawed from side to side. On the other hand, employees who are also citizens and general citizens who are consumers 
look at companies that are having a big voice. They think that we could come together and exert more power and speak about a social issue. They're not wrong, but they've got to understand that we have to use that mic very carefully, constantly jumping up and down in every issue, which uh, sometimes a small group of employees want you to do, means you don't get heard many times. So that's why we have the business roundtable, the chambers of commerce. We've got to work through them to have a unified voice on issues. That's as we come to the end. I'm going to take you back actually to your school days when, as well as being the rock star that you modestly disclaim that you were, <laughs> anyone out there with a recording of Indra back in school, we'd love it, you know. <laughs> but you were, you were also a, a very keen cricketer. Today you're a director of the International Cricket Council. It's an unusual sport for someone in American business life to be interested in. What did it teach you? Well, you know, the fact that I'm on the ICC is like a dream come true in many ways because cricket is like a religion in India and people just love the game. Uh, I think I got more fame for being on the board of the ICC than anything else because people said, wow, she's on the board of the ICC. Wow. Of course, people keep calling for tickets, which they don't get because that's not the business I'm in. I tell you, cricket is an amazing sport. It's a sport of endurance when you play tests. It's a real team sport. Uh, You know, there are no individual uh, heroics here. You can carry your bat for a long time or take a lot of wickets, but you need a lot of help to carry your bat through or take a lot of wickets. Your fielders have to help. Captain has to help you set the field. Your wicketkeeper has to help. So many people have to help. So it's the ultimate team sport. People have to come together and work together. It hooks you in. It absolutely hooks you in. And, you know, it's interesting. And unlike the 60s and 70s, when we had incredibly iconic cricketers that people followed, now it's more of a team sport. There are iconic players, don't get me wrong. Your Joe Root is an iconic player. Virat Kohli or Sachin Tendulkar are iconic players. But now there are teams that are strong. So it's becoming a broader-shouldered sport. And in 2028, if you're successful getting cricket into the Olympics, I think the whole world will be introduced to cricket. Do you get the impression, listeners, that Ingenuity is quite keen on talking about cricket? (laughs) I think it's your favourite topic, really, isn't it? I love cricket. Last thought, if I were to come into what it looks like your very tidy office from seeing behind you, I can't see the table in front of you. What do I catch you these days? You're a free agent. You're free to answer nowadays, I suppose, uh, outside your corporate duties. Would you, I still find you with a glass of Pepsi? Always. You should go into my little kitchen. You'll find all the Pepsi products there. And I still enjoy the greatest products that we developed in the company. Great tasting, great quality. I am still a diehard PepsiCo fan. Stop, Mrs. Newey, before the advertising break. <laughs> Indra Newey, showing that she hasn't quite forgotten there how to, <laughs> how to lead one of the great companies. Indra Newey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It was wonderful to talk with you. And we'd love to know what you think. What would the workplace engineered for parenthood and career success look like? Have you ever seen it on Planet Real? If you've cracked the work-life conundrum, then do share your secrets with the rest of us, writing to podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do give us a rating on Apple. We'd appreciate it, or wherever you listen, of course. And do become a subscriber today. 
Over on our website, you'll find an article from our business team about what the shortage economy means for America, Inc., while our Bartleby columnist ponders the meaning of mission statements. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 